Welcome again to church. It's great having you here. Uh, I'm Matt Friend, the senior pastor. Love, love, love that you're here. We also want to welcome those who are joining us online. I uh, would love to have you here next time you're in the Charleston area. Today we're continuing our series called This Is Us. And I asked it a couple weeks ago, but I want to ask again, how many of you have at least watched one episode of This Is Us? Will you raise your hand? At least an episode. Okay, actually, I found a picture this week of our student ministries pastor, uh, Pastor Matt Garrison, actually watching uh, This Is Us. I thought you would appreciate this. Um, a little blurry, a little. Also, saw a tweet this week I thought you would appreciate. Uh, the tweet is the next one. So, if you've ever seen it, there we go. Uh, I have to figure out if I can take bereavement leave for a TV character. If you have been watching it lately, you know what that's about. And then, lastly, the slide that we just showed. Um, if you have no idea what we're talking about, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it at all. But it's a pretty popular show. It'll earn you brownie points, fellas, if you sit down and watch an episode uh, with your wife. But this series we're currently in, in Ephesians 4, has very little to do with the, the TV show, This Is Us. But it has a lot to do uh, with the fact that we, like the show, are just broken people. We're on a journey together and we're trying to find our way. Thankfully, we don't have to wander through life. We have the Bible that'll lead us every step of the way. So we've been plowing through Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to conclude the series next Sunday. Pastor Mike Graham, who gave the announcements a moment ago, will be preaching next week. I'll be here, but I've asked him to preach uh, next week on family, and he's going to go to the book of Hebrews. Uh, you're going to want to be here because in one sermon, he's going to cover the book of Hebrews from start to finish. And he is a good teacher. He is a quick teacher. So I hope you'll be here next Sunday as we finish up this series looking at what the Bible says about family, about belonging. This is us. Speaking of family, tonight at 6 o'clock we have our family vision night. If you're a member, I hope you've already made plans to be here. If you're not yet a member but you consider this your church, uh, you're invited as well. It's going to be a good time. We're planning on about 45 minutes. It may go up to an hour, but we're really, really going to try to keep it under an hour. We're going to talk about one decision, a unanimous decision from our elders and our pastors. Our staff has really worked on this that we believe is going to help you invite more and more of your friends and family to church. We're excited about it. Uh, if none of that excites you, come for the free ice cream. Six o'clock tonight, Huskies will be here. Bring the kiddos. It'll be a good time together right here in the worship center. But before we read our scripture, I want to tell you a story of something that happened this week in my home. And just to let you know that all of our families really are a beautiful mess. There's nobody that has it all together. So this past week, we were, uh, Sarah and I were changing out light bulbs in our laundry room. And I was putting the new bulbs in. She took the old bulbs. She said, what do I do with them? And I said, just take them out and put them in the garage. You know, those four foot long skinny bulbs. So put them in the garage. I'll deal with them later. And so she, as she's going out to the garage, she turns back and looks at me and she says, you're not going to bust them up and explode them again, are you? I was like, of course not. Why would I do that? Why would I do that? So she puts them out in the garage, and Wednesday night comes. I'm taking all the trash out, and I see the bulbs, and I really just couldn't help myself. The temptation was too strong. And so I knew she didn't want me to bust them because the kids sometimes run around barefoot, uh, barefooted. The, the dog runs around. And so I put them in a big six-foot trash bag tied the bag and thought, well, I'll bust them inside the bag. Nobody will ever know. Sarah won't know. I'll still get to have a little bit of fun, and they'll just get to go out with the trash. 
So I do what a mature 38-year-old father of two does. I take the light bulbs out. I go and grab my best hammer and with a big old smile on my face in the driveway, I bust the first bulb. If you've ever done that, you know it sounds like a 22 going off. So I knew my cover was blown. I knew not only did she hear it, but probably everybody else in my neighborhood probably heard the ball break. I thought, well, I'm already in this. Might as well go all the way. So I took the hammer and I busted the second bulb. Now, again, I'm thinking I might still get away with it. After all, they're in a bag. It's sealed. No glass is going to go anywhere. I reach down and I pick up the bag that's very tightly tied. And as I pick it up, it suddenly occurred to me what the explosion noise, what noise was. It wasn't just the bulb, but it was the gas actually blowing a gaping hole in the bottom of the bag. And so as I pick up my nicely tied bag, all the glass, and by all, I mean every piece, goes all over the driveway. So I go in the house, right? I'm still thinking maybe she doesn't know. And I go in the house, it's like 10 o'clock at night. She's helping the girls get ready for bed. And I say, hey, sweetie, where's the shop vac? And she turns and looks at me with that look some of you know what I'm talking about. And she says, sweetie, did your, did your light bulb situation go awry? <laughs> I didn't respond because I knew I would sin. So I didn't say anything. I found the shop back, go outside, and at 10 o'clock at night, I'm out vacuuming my driveway. Now, the attachment is missing. We still can't find the attachment for the shop back. So I'm literally just taking the little hose and going all over my driveway 10 o'clock at night. I tell you that just to admit that all of our relationships, all of our families, to one degree or another, experience some kind of mess. And I believe this morning I'm speaking to somebody, and maybe you've got a mess in your family. And all joking aside, it's it's much more serious than just broken glass on the driveway. I'm speaking to somebody, and you have a mess at work, somebody you've been at odds with, some real conflict every day you go to work. I believe I'm speaking to somebody and you've got a mess in your extended family. Maybe you've got a mess in in a church relationship or somebody else in your life. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a kid. This morning, God has laid up on my heart to encourage you not to give up. Don't fall out. Don't press backwards, but instead press forwards. In the next few minutes, I want to do the best I can to encourage you and say, it is worth it. Relationships are messy, but they are worth it. At the top of your outline, if you're taking notes, you'll see that statement. Relationships are a mess worth making. In the next few minutes, I want to explain what's wrong with us. Number two, why there's hope for us. And number three, how we can become a more beautiful us. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians 4. I'll begin reading in verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17. If you would please stand out of respect for the Bible, Ephesians 4, 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a first century, new, fairly new, young church in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a large city. It's an important city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And if you want to read the story about how the gospel came to Ephesus, you can find it in Acts 19. The Apostle Paul stayed there for over two years in helping this church, many believe actually a network of churches, get established in the faith and begin to grow. Some time passed and the Apostle Paul writes back to the church or churches that he loved and he's telling them, he's, he's warning them, he's giving them instruction on how they can live the Christian life. And one of the big themes in the book of Ephesians is unity. Some even say, many scholars believe that unity is the summation of Paul's theology. Our union with Christ and our union with one another. And so as he's writing to this new church, he says, there's going to be times where your unity is tested. Appreciate your diversity. Appreciate the diverse gifts that Christ has given. But above all things, keep pressing into relationships. Keep pressing into unity. Keep trying. Never, ever give up. And so he gives them some warnings at the beginning of this paragraph to let them know why sometimes unity is difficult. Why sometimes that our relationships are difficult? And so we ask the question, why are they difficult or what's wrong with us? The answer is in verse 17 through 19. I'll summarize the paragraph this way and then I'll explain. Our hearts were once hardened by wrong thinking, sinful cravings, and greedy choices. Our hearts were once hardened by wrong thinking, sinful cravings, and greedy choices. Verse 17, he begins to explain. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Paul starts with a relatively negative thought to, to wake him up before saying, hey, here's how you live in community. It's important that their theology of depravity be understood. In other words, it's important that they know why this is so hard. And he says, because there's a certain futility of thinking among the Gentiles. When he uses the word Gentiles in Ephesians 4, he's not talking about anybody of a specific ethnicity, but instead he's just talking about people in general who don't know Jesus. He's using a parallel from the Old Testament and saying there's a certain way of thinking that people have who don't know the, Jesus as their Savior. So no longer think like that. Stop thinking like that. Paul knows that even though we're Christians, we're still tempted at times to think and act like the old way. And so in verse 17, he says, no longer, don't do it. This idea of futil futility of thinking in verse 17 reminds us that even the most intelligent unbelievers still know very, very little. They know nothing of eternal significance. Unbelievers can provide great contributions to medicine and technology in all areas of society. But the smartest unbeliever, when he or she dies, still loses. God is very clear in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Sometime if you're reading through 2 Peter chapter 1, you'll hear how he says to add certain virtues to our faith. And most people in the world, most unbelievers in the world believe in virtue. But Paul says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that virtue must be built on the fear and faith in the Lord. Without that, everything else crumbles 
when we die. And so in verse 18, he continues to describe. He says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Before Jesus shined into your life and my life, we were filled with darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 is very clear. Even if we had some kind of superficial knowledge of God, before faith in Christ, darkness clouded our thinking. This is true of a college professor or an illiterate backwoodsman. One author put it this way, the darkness in our hearts swallowed up our understanding and kept us from seeing the glory of the gospel or the excellency of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers have this image of God that they want God to be, but we as believers go to God's word to actually find out who God is. One of my favorite atheists, Frederick Nietzsche, wrote in Beyond Good and Evil, he said, the idea of objective human beings who are just disinterested seekers in truth is crazy. The human heart is too insecure to ever be able to handle the truth. I think about that time you want to cue Jack Nicholson, right? Like you can't handle the truth. God's word is clear. When we were unbelievers, our minds were darkened with sin. He continues in verse 18 and says that we've been separated from the life of God. There was something missing in our souls before we found Jesus. For many of us, that's what drove us to Christ. In God's sovereign grace, he, he used that gnawing. He, he used that calling for us to finally uh, realize that it was the gospel that brings hope. Augustine said it this way, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Yesterday I was with a friend and we were talking while we were running about this verse and, and he asked this question, I never thought about it before, he says, do you believe in coincidence? Do you believe in coincidence? And of course as we started to talk, we talked about passages like Romans 11 that there is no such thing as a coincidence, God holds everything in his hand. But we continue to talk about how that for many unbelievers, they see the world through coincidence. But it's not until we truly understand God's word and his worldview that we realize there are no coincidences. Everything is under his providential care. But before we were believers, Paul says we were spiritually ignorant. And notice the last part of verse 18. He says that in us was a, a hardening of the heart. Our hearts were stone cold towards spiritual truth. The famous phrase says, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. God is the same for both the believer and the unbeliever. But the difference between a hard heart and a soft heart is the difference of that grace making us able to receive God's gift of salvation. Notice verse 19. He says, having lost all sensitivity... They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Before we were Christians, we could never respond to spiritual stimuli. Our, our hearts were just deadened. We were desensitized to it. Our consciences were so atrophied that sin registered no stab of pain. We were numb. But we weren't numb to sin, we were numb to God because this verse says we gave ourselves over to sensuality. 
If you write notes in your Bible, you might write the word cravings beside sensuality. Essentially here he's teaching that we just continually gave ourselves to whatever gave us pleasure or whatever gave us security. He says this is the mind of an unbeliever. And he continues and says that we were full of greed. The word greed means greedy lust. It's not just about sex or about money, but it's anything that we say we must have or else we will die. That's the heart of us without Christ. Our hearts were once hardened by wrong thinking, sinful cravings, and greedy desires. Now I'll ask you the question, how many of you think that a Christian can ever be tempted with any of these things? You think a Christian could ever be tempted with these things? I'll ask how many of you, and again, if this isn't you, just stare at the person next to you. How many of you have ever, since you've been a Christian, been tempted with any of these things? Anybody at all? Two or three of us. Yeah, sure. We, we all have. You say, well, I thought this was for an unbeliever, but I'm a believer. Why do I still struggle with these things? We won't take time to get into it this morning uh, deeply, but the Bible talks about something called the flesh. The Bible talks about something called the flesh. Go ahead and go over to our main point so people can make sure they get that. When we think about the flesh, our flesh is that part of us uh, that's been impacted by our old nature. So whenever we became a Christian, God gave us a new nature, but we still have this residual scarring, this residual impact of our old selves. If you look at me closely, you'll see that underneath my chin, I can't really grow a beard right here because I have eight stitches there when I was a kid. I was trying to do a wheelie. I grew up over in St. Albans. I was trying, had a great street to do wheelies on. Wheelies are okay until you try to turn while doing a wheelie going about 40 miles an hour. That never turns out well. I learned that that day in the emergency room. I learned that lesson. And so I had eight stitches. Every morning when I look at myself in the mirror, I still see the, I still see the scar, the impact of what was. Yes, I've got new skin, and yes, I've healed, but there's still that impact that's left its trace. That's the best way I know to describe to you that you still have a flesh. You still have a part of you, and I still have a part of me that wants the world to revolve around me. That's why I tell young married couples before they go into marriage, don't be surprised if you have your first fight before the honeymoon's over. Matter of fact, don't be surprised if you have your first fight before you get where you're going on the honeymoon. I tell church members when people are coming into membership, man, when you first join a church, you're so excited. This church is great and they do everything perfect. And our pastors, they walk on water. And after you're here for a few weeks, you're like, wait a minute, there's broken people here. Nobody told me there's broken people here. There are broken people here. And so understanding, having a good theology of sin helps us understand unity. Why is there hope for us? He continues. I've summarized the next paragraph this way. The spirit of Jesus has used the story of Jesus to make the beauty of Jesus alive in our hearts. The spirit of Jesus has used the story of Jesus to make the beauty of Jesus alive in our hearts. Look with me in verses 20 and 21. Paul writes, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him 
in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. The spirit of Jesus has used the story of Jesus to make the beauty of Jesus alive in our hearts. If you notice in this verse, you'll see that he refers to Jesus with two different words. He refers to him as Christ, and then later he, in verse 21, he refers to him as Jesus. Is that just Paul using a different word like writers do? Well, most scholars believe this is significant. I didn't know this until this week. Most of the time when Paul referred to Jesus, he uses the word Christ. Paul was a Jew who had been expecting the Messiah to come and save not only Israel, but later to come and save the world. So Paul never got over the fact that Jesus is and will be and was the Messiah. And so that's the word Christ that we translate from Messiah. Paul rarely referred to Jesus by his name. Rarely did he ever do that. I have to study that more, but there's a few times it shows up in the New Testament. And most scholars believe that whenever he referred to Jesus by name and didn't just call him Christ, he was referring to the story, the true story of Jesus. The Jesus who, who came and was born of a virgin and was laid in a manger and lived a perfect life, was a carpenter who died on a cross and who was buried and rose again. And so he's referring to the great true story of Christ. And as we look at verses 20 and 21, it's more than just saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. But it's saying, I believe that Jesus, yes, is the Christ. But I also believe in everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said, I believe in the great story of Jesus. You know, the Bible really is one big story of Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it tells the story of Christ. If I were going to sum up the Bible in 10 words, I would use these 10 words to sum it up. Number one, God creates. That's in the past. God created the world. God presently continues to bring creation, make it fresh and new before our eyes. But sin breaks. You get to Genesis chapter 3 and sin has already broken the world. But that's not only a past reality, it's a present reality. Whenever something goes wrong in your life, it, you can trace it back some way or another to Adam and Eve's fall. But also our own hearts are sinful still. We still crave sin. But thankfully, Jesus saves that's the big storyline of the New Testament. And the Old Testament pointed to it that Jesus brings salvation to the world. Not only in the past, but now Jesus can save you from your sins and will continue to save people from their sins until the final day. Jesus transforms. The gospel isn't the end of your life. It's the beginning of your life. Through the gospel, your life continues to be shaped into the image of Jesus. And one day, God's going to restore all things to himself. And those 10 words, the entire Bible is summarized, Genesis to Revelation. And so what Paul is saying essentially is this, fall in love with the story of Jesus, because it's the story of Jesus that brings you hope. We can have hope even though, yes, we're broken and knowing that God saves us, transforms us, and one day will restore us. If you've never put your faith in Christ, my prayer is that this morning, at the end of the service, I'll give you an opportunity to do that. We have a prayer room over off to my left. You're welcome to visit the prayer room after the service. Somebody can take a Bible and show you how to become a Christian 
And I'll also, right in the service, give you the chance to pray and accept Christ as your Savior. Notice what he says in verse 22. There's more good news. In verse 22, he, he tells us why there's hope. Because he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. In other words, you've believed the message of the gospel. You've believed in the, put your faith in the central story figure, Jesus Christ. And so now your old nature has been replaced by a new nature. The old nature is gone. In verse 23, he says, and be made new in the attitude of your minds. Literally, you have been made new. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 17. If any person be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God gave you a new identity when you put your faith in Jesus. I read this week of a North African pastor by the name of Augustine, and he lived about 1,600 years ago, A.D. 400-ish. Augustine, before he was a believer, was a sex addict. And Augustine struggled with all sorts of, of sin, public and private. He put his faith in Christ, and he's very honest about his struggles even after he puts his faith in Christ. But he's put up safeguards in his life, and he had accountability, and he, he wanted to love God more than he loved his pleasure. And so he used to travel, and as he traveled to different cities, he had different mistresses in the different cities. But after he put his faith in Christ, he visited one city, and this certain lady said, Augustine, you're back. Augustine, it is I. And she was expecting him to flirt with her. But instead, he looked at her and he said, but ma'am, it is not I. In other words, I am no longer the man I used to be. You, there's hope because you have a new nature in Christ. In verse 24, he continues with that thought. You've put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Growing up, there was a kid named Bobby that lived in the neighborhood next to ours. Bobby was in elementary school with me from kindergarten right on through. Bobby was in middle school, and Bobby was always the little kid. Maybe some of you used to be the, the little kid. He was always the little kid. He was my friend. Um, people picked on Bobby some. I actually put Bobby in a locker once, uh, but he wanted to, I promise. He asked to see if he could fit. It was one of the small lockers over at Hayes, and so I stuffed him in and closed it, thinking that I would just then get him out. But he starts pushing on the inside of the locker, and Mrs. Day, some of you remember Mrs. Day, if you from St. Albans, she's since passed away. But Mrs. Day walks by, and I know I'm in trouble because now Bobby's banging on the inside of the locker, and it's jammed, and she's like, who's in the locker? And I'm like, what locker? What are you talking about? You know, like the one that's banging. Anyway, Bobby never really grew up in stature. He's still a pretty, pretty small dude. But Bobby did grow up in his mind. Somewhere right along around 8th or ninth grade, something changed in his mind. And, and he, he just thought of himself as being, you know, 7 feet tall and tough. I don't know what it was, but something just changed in his mind and nobody messed with Bobby again. Because you knew if you messed with Bobby, you weren't going to come out without some blood. Like he just thought, thought he was, a, something in his mind changed. His structure, his stature didn't really change, but his mind changed. 
And that's what I'm encouraging you to do this morning. To be renewed in your mind. To stop seeing yourself as a dirty, rotten scoundrel who's barely saved by grace. If you see yourself as a dirty, rotten scoundrel barely saved by grace, guess how you'll live? Like a dirty, rotten scoundrel barely saved by grace. But if you see yourself clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and you see yourself as a saint 63 times in the New Testament, you're called a saint. On the way home today, look at the person next to you or call somebody on the phone and say, I just want you to know, my pastor says, I am a saint. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are. And so the call to community is the call to see ourselves as saints and the call to see one another as saints. There's hope in the gospel that can radically shape how we see ourselves and how we see our church. Quickly, what's wrong with us? Our hearts were once hardened by wrong thinking, sinful cravings and greedy choices. Why is there hope for us? The Spirit of Jesus has used the story of Jesus to make the beauty of Jesus alive in our hearts. So how can we be more beautiful? How can we be a more beautiful us? In verses 22 and following, we'll not read all the verses, but it gives us a way, a practical application for becoming a more beautiful us. It's written in covenantal language. Some believe this was like the precursor to a church covenant. God spells out for us our responsibility when we live in the church. How can we become a more beautiful us? Number one, resist temptation. Number one, resist temptation. We see it in verse 22. He says, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. And he said, wait a minute, Pastor Matt. You just read that a moment ago and said that's a fact, that like we have put off our old selves when we got saved. But now you're preaching it like a command, and that's on purpose. We do this in English all the time, but in the Greek language, this word is spelled exactly the same, whether it be an imperative or an indicative. All of you who loved English class, both of you, you're going to love this truth, right? (laughs) The difference between an imperative and an indicative, sometimes they're spelled the same, but sometimes the, the emphasis, or often the emphasis is on purpose. I might look at Jeff. And I might say, Jeff, you run. Jeff, you, you run. That means like Jeff runs. Jeff runs. But I might also look at Jeff like if, let's say something, a dog is chasing him. I might say, Jeff, you run. You run. It's the same words, but it means something completely different. And no one really knows for sure. It seems almost as if the Apostle Paul purposely put this word in here to talk about the overlapping of the ages. And he's saying, yes, it's true. When you put your faith in Jesus, the old man, the old self was gone. But because you still live on earth where sin reigns, don't forget every day to actively choose to put off those things that characterize the old self. I love it because it reminds us we're not home yet. We still fight our addictions. We still fight our temptations. And so he says, put them off. Immaturity is not the same thing as weakness. Never forget that. Immaturity is not the same thing as weakness. Maturity is knowing your weaknesses and protecting yourself from them. Maturity is knowing your weaknesses and protecting yourself from them. We all have them, and we all need to be on guard. Number two, 
Ask God to continually renew your mind with his word. Ask God to continually renew your mind with his word. Verse 23 is the key to understanding verses 22 and 24. He says in verse 23, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Be made new. How can we be made new practically? John 17, 17, sanctify them through the truth for your word is truth. As you dive into God's word and you study it, and you absorb it, and you meditate on it, and you love it, it begins to capture your imagination about Jesus in a way like it you never have before. He says, study, get in God's word. Number three, replace bad habits with good habits. Replace bad habits with good habits. So he says, put off. Then he says, renew. Then he says, put on. Verse 24, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and true holiness. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The rest of the chapter, you can read it for yourself. The Apostle Paul gives practical ways to put off certain sins and to put on certain habits. Lying. Hey, tell the truth. If you've been lying, stop lying, but tell the truth. If you have a struggle with anger, set up some boundaries. He gives a one boundary as an instance. He says, make up your mind you're not going to go to bed angry. That's just one boundary. Uh, he says, stop stealing, but instead, get a job and be generous. Stop saying hurtful, destructive words, but instead say encouraging words. Stop being a person that always causes conflict, but instead be a person that when you walk in, people know that you are in love with the love and grace of God. It gets very, very practical, but it's based upon what Christ has done for us. In closing, I want to draw your attention to this same screen. Just leave this screen up for a moment. If you'll notice, every one of these sins and every one of the remedies, the practical applications, cannot be done alone, especially when you read through the rest of Ephesians 4. So in other words, I used to think that I was a pretty patient person until I got married and had kids. Then I realized, you know what, I'm not a patient person at all. I, I used to think that my words were so encouraging and, man, I was such a kind person until I jumped into community group. And then I realized sometimes I say things that hurt people I don't even mean to. Until I, I jump on a staff with a group of people, until I start living life with brothers and sisters, I realize, wait a minute, man, I, I'm not, I don't have this thing licked. I like to think of myself as a pretty peaceful person until I start living life with other people. Then I realize, oh my goodness, I am really, really jacked up. And you are too. So here's my encouragement. The very thing that reveals our sinfulness community is the very thing God has given us to help remedy our sinfulness. And I want to encourage you to jump, like Pastor Mike says, into a group this week. He's already given you all the details. He's given you all the avenues. Jump into a group. Live life with other brothers and sisters. And let them not only reveal areas of your life that need growth, but let them help you through the areas of life where you need growth relationships are a mess but they are a mess worth making go all in this week let me pray for you 
Father, thank you for what you're doing in our community of faith. Lord, I sense it. People this week, God, the decisions that have been made in the last seven days in the lives of people, I pray that it would continue as we press forward towards unity. Lord, I pray for the person in our room this morning that doesn't know unity with you and they don't know unity with your church because they've never put their faith in Christ. I pray this morning that you would help them decide, that you would open up their hearts to decide that they will follow Christ. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe that's you. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that today. You don't know what time you have left and why give any, any more of your days to anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ. If this morning God has touched your heart with the gospel and you want to put your faith in Jesus, you can do that right where you sit. You've already pondered it. You've already thought about it. God's already been working in your heart. And I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me in your own words. You can pray it under your breath. You can pray it in your heart silently. But if the gospel that we've been talking about, it makes sense in your mind. And you say, I don't want Jesus just to be another leader in my life. I want him to be the Lord of my life. Pray this prayer with me right there where you sit. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken on the inside. I know I'm broken on the outside. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for rising again. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Help me to follow Jesus. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to help you. I want to serve you. I want to love you. I'll not embarrass you. No one will know who you are. I'll not point you out. But if you say, Pastor Matt, just right here in the privacy of this moment, I prayed that prayer. I meant it. And I just want you to remember me in the closing prayer that God would help me grow as a Christian. Would you privately just raise your hand right where you sit? Pastor Matt, I prayed that prayer. I meant that prayer, and I'm glad that I did. Thank God for you on my left. Thank God for you. Praise God for you, sir. You say, I prayed that prayer. I meant that prayer, and I'm glad that I did. With heads bowed and eyes closed, you who raised your hand, I'm going to keep my promise to you, and I'm going to pray for you. But when the service is over, I'm going to ask you to find me or just step into the prayer room off to my left. Either one of us, any of our pastors, would love to encourage you, pray with you, and help you on your journey of faith. We're all in this together. I'm going to pray for you now. Father, thank God for this man who raised his hand. And I pray that you would help us be a church that can help him mature in his relationship with you. God, I pray that you'd help us to love one another. And I'm asking that through this community series, more people would jump into groups. More people would jump into the life and body of community. God, we love you, we need you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.